Welcome to Big Girl Poker Chat, hosted by Donna Blevins, the big girl of poker at six feet five inches tall. This is not your average poker podcast. Donna and her guests talk about poker in a way you've never heard before. Listen in and learn about how to play the game and how to win at life. Find show notes for this show and more great content on the blog at biggirlpoker.com. And now, Donna Blevins. So, hello, this is Donna Blevins, the Poker Mindset Coach, and I am here with Linda Johnson and Jan Fisher. Good afternoon, ladies. Glad to have you with us. Nice to be here. Linda, Linda Johnson, she's known as the First Lady of Poker. She's a WSOP bracelet winner, member of the Poker Hall of Fame, Women in Poker Hall of Fame, and co-owner of Card Player Cruises. Welcome, Linda. Thanks, Donna. I appreciate you having uh, me as a guest. And Jan Fisher. Uh, Jan is in also in the Women, Hall, Poker, Women in Poker Hall of Fame and partner in Card Player Cruises. And for many years, she has been a poker columnist. And she and Linda were actually two of the people that I first started reading uh, their poker columns when I started uh, learning how to play poker in 1996. So welcome, Jan, as well. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to chat with you on the phone, on the Internet, or in person, especially in person. So thank you for having me. Yeah, this is this is fun. Well, I, I call this meeting because I wanted us to talk about how poker is changing. And why don't you all, since you have been in poker for so many years, uh, Linda, why don't you start out by telling me how poker has, has changed over the years for you? Oh, it's, it's changed in lots of ways. The style of play has changed, but even more than that, uh, the atmosphere in the poker room has changed. When I first started got, getting involved in it back in the 70s, there were very few women, and the environment was not very conducive to having women come into it, and uh, there was a lot of abuse, and today it's uh, it's not like that. There's a lot of elegant, beautiful card rooms, and people are treated with respect. Uh, however, the main thing, as I alluded to earlier, the main thing that's changed is the play, uh, the aggression level, the bluffing, the and the game. You know, we didn't play No Limit Hold'em until 2001, I believe it was, when the World Poker Tour first aired. Other than that, you could not find a No Limit game. And now, almost every game in a card room is No Limit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I certainly agree with everything Linda just mentioned. And another big plus about the card rooms now is uh, that they've all gone no smoking. I, I think there's only one card room in all of Las Vegas that allows smoking. And I think that uh, most every other venue uh, is purely non-smoking or maybe there's a, 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 an occasional card room here or there. But that has certainly made the atmosphere more enjoyable to both men and women and uh, just kind of raised the whole uh, aura of the public poker event. I agree with you 100%. That it, it's absolutely fantastic today when you go into card rooms. It's very comfortable as a woman, uh, even though we are still a minority. Absolutely. It's, we will be for a long time. I'm okay with that, frankly, because I think women have a great advantage at the poker table and uh, because, because I like to be underestimated. Well, then you're going to be right at home. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. Well, tell me about your own personal game. How has that changed and how you have had to change your game in order to continue to win? Because I want the listeners to be able to really figure out how they can, what they need to do in relationship to their own personal game. Okay. 
Uh, I think the main thing you have to do more today than you had to do back in the old days is you have to call down aggressive players more. We used to kind of have a saying, no set, no bet. People didn't bluff like crazy. People didn't three and four bet with air like they do today. And if you uh, continually make big laydowns against aggressive players, I think that you are losing value at the poker table. So that would be the the main strategy difference. And I hate calling. Believe me, I hate to call. But these guys are going to try and run over you, and you have to let them know that they can't do that. And in in return, you need to be more aggressive today than you ever have been in the past. You need to, to do that uh, free betting with air, and you need to figure out who's the most aggressive person at your table and uh, go after them. And, and, and just the opposite of that is true, of course, as well, that you need to know who the tightest player at the table is and then react according to that. Uh, as, as we talked about before, profiling of players and paying attention at the table so that you can take advantage of um, the information that players will give you just simply by their actions. It's not how they wear their hat or how they hold their chips or their card. It's not all these physical tells necessarily. So much of the information is just by flat out paying attention at the table and knowing who plays the most pots, who enters the most pots, who limps the most, who raises the most, who comes over the top the most. If you're just able to identify those few things, it's going to put you in a whole lot better position to uh, either lose less or, or win more. Yeah, another thing you have to do is to prepare. And, you know, so many people just go to the poker table and they haven't studied, they haven't, you know, read books, they haven't enjoyed the online forums, they haven't done any of the work and they're like, why am I losing? Let's face it, most players lose and they lose because they're not prepared. I'm amazed when someone says, I think I'm going to become a professional poker player. And I say, well, how many books have you read? Two. How long have you been playing? Six months. Well, you can't just decide to go and be a brain surgeon tomorrow and be successful. And first of all, you can't do it. But, you know, these people who think that poker is an easy game and they haven't done the work, they're not going to succeed. I, I, agree, I agree with you 100%. Absolutely. And, and, and when you... You keep up with your game, you know. You, you've the two of you have basically written the game of poker. As far as I'm concerned, you've put out some of those most amazing writings over the years. I've learned from you. I continually learn from you. And and how do you how do you keep up with your personal game game when when you're the you're the one who's actually who's actually the role model for everyone else? Well, we have the pleasure of being instructors for the World Poker Tour Boot Camp. And some of the people who run the camp have the best poker minds in the world. And so we have the opportunity to discuss poker with them. We also belong to a Wednesday poker discussion group. In other words, you know, we put in the time, we talk about poker, we watch poker on TV, we read uh, books, we read magazines, we uh, read online forums. You know, we invest a lot of time into uh, into becoming better. And, you know, I try to read pretty much every book that's out there. I mean, some of them aren't going to be too good, but a lot of them you're going to get some good information. So it's really a matter of just putting in the time and having the passion for poker. You know, things change as we just talked about how the evolution of poker. And if you think you know it all, then you're just going to be left behind. I'm amazed when, you know, if if someone's doing a seminar and I'll ask someone, do you want to go? And they're like, no, I think I know it. Well, you know, if that's true, if they know everything, then I want to go to their seminar. But it's not true. People people think they know things and they don't because it's constantly changing. 
I, I, I agree 100%. When I was in real estate for many years, uh, I invested in home study courses. And when we uh, closed our real estate office and, and moved on to another profession, we had 250 home study courses, and most of them had at least six hours of audio tapes. And we had been through every one of those. Some of them were pretty crappy, but what I found out was that I, I learned something from every single program. Yeah, but some yeah. people think that buying the books and, and whatnot, that the books are overpriced, but, you know, most poker books are, you know, $25, dollars $40. If you pick up one thing in a book, you've paid for the book, and you've made you've given yourself an opportunity for future earnings. And, you know, being, being realistic about your game and putting in the effort, you ha- and you have to love it. You really have to love playing to be able to put in the dedication to doing it. And like you said, with the real estate, you love what you're doing, so you invested the time, and you you found value everywhere, you also can learn a lot of things not to do because some of the authors are just flat out wrong. I mean, you don't have to have a qualification to write a book. You just have to have a publisher. And so, you know, anybody can write a book. And if you if you stick with some of the known authors and uh, get the get the nuggets and, you know, figure out with your study group or your mentors or the people you talk poker with what the good stuff is and what the bad stuff is, and then try it. Experiment. You know, people want to play high limit too quickly in their poker careers when they should be playing the smallest game possible and moving up slowly, uh, you know, as they find whether or not they can beat the game. Absolutely. I agree 100%. When Greg and I first started uh, playing in the late 90s, his ego, uh, you know, you, you know Greg and my husband, his ego really uh, hurt him because he wanted to play in the biggest game in the in the card room. And that was very expensive until he realized, well, that's dumb. You know, I, I'm I'm a fish to more than half the people at the table. Why don't I find a game that that is is like where I can win? For goodness sakes, that's silly. And yeah, when find I, when he, yeah, I agree. I tell people to play in the game you can beat, not the game you want to beat. That's exactly right. And what would you tell people in relationship to taking their game from online to live? What do they have to think about? I think they've got to be more patient because you know, online you're playing so many hands and. And, um, you know, you're just not going to get to play that many. And so I think you might have a tendency to want to enter more pots because you're not being dealt in as quite as often. So patience would be a good recommendation. Mm-hmm. Jan, you think of anything right off? Um, yeah, just uh, they also, when they play online, and, of course, this is for the, the non-U.S. people because we can't play online anymore, but... We had so much tracking information where the computer and these programs did the work for us. So we didn't have to notice who played the most pots. We could just look at our online stats and see who had the highest DPIP and who had the most, the highest aggression factor. And it's, it's harder work at the live game in many ways because you have to do this work for yourself and you have to occupy your mind. And as we mentioned earlier, not by playing on your tablet or your smartphone, but by paying attention to the players because that information is not going to be readily available to you. And if you miss it, that moment is gone. You can't go back and do a hand history and, and think, geez, I wonder, how did he play that? How did he play that free flop? So you have to really pay attention all the time. It, it's exhausting, and you, it, it takes so much longer to get X number of hands in versus online that you really have to have the stamina to, to, to do it and to go the distance. I, I agree with you 100%. One of the things that I find that people who have been playing online and have, have just come into live play, what happens to them is, is they forget how transparent they are and how they're reacting to their hands. That's right. Yeah, they're much more inclined to give off tells 
um, you know, that they're not aware of because they're not used to people looking at them. Mm-hmm. How do you think profiling is profiling different with the new generation of more aggressive players than it has been before? I don't really think it's different. I, I think you're still going to have to um, pay attention and watch how people play and what they do and when they bet. And, you know, so that's something that even though the styles are different, if you're not watching to see what your opponents are doing, then you're not getting the information that you need to make good decisions at the table. So, you know, just probably paying the same amount of attention that you should always have been paying, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you you can make some assumptions, you know, when you first sit down at a table because you you know you're you're playing in a vacuum with no information at all when you first sit down, and because of the physicality of live poker, there are certain things that you can assume until they show you otherwise that uh, an old a middle aged or older woman is probably going to be a tighter player and bet when she has something and check when she doesn't, and a kid with a sideways baseball hat and and headphones on is probably going to be more loose and more aggressive and maybe more reckless. And making making assumptions like that are are probably truer than and, and more accurate for you than going in and just having no knowledge at all. And then when they when the player shows you otherwise, then you can adjust your thoughts. But there are some generalizations that are pretty good indicators of how somebody's going to play or is playing. Some stereotypes, huh? Yeah, absolutely stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me how you would how you would stereotype people based on what they do for a living. How that relates to their poker game. You've mentioned two uh, physical indications. An older woman might be might tend to fold if she doesn't have something. Uh, a, a younger kid might be more aggressive, regardless of what he has. Well, think about people that think about professions and how would that relate to how people play. Well, if I actually if like to, is a I'm sorry. If, if somebody's a race car driver, they're probably going to be a more wild player with more gambling tendencies. And if somebody is an accountant or a rocket scientist, they're probably going to be more mathematical and analytical with less gamble in them. And then, of course, everything in, in the middle. Uh, we used to discuss how when Daniel would get to a table, he would start talking to the players, and everyone would think, oh, this is so cool. Daniel cares about me, and he wants to know what I do. Well, Daniel doesn't really care about you. He doesn't really care what you do, but... If you ask, if he asks you, well, what do you do for a living? And you tell him, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a hot air balloon pilot. He's going to put you in a category of of somebody who might take higher risks in life than if you tell him that that you're a you know a, a an accountant yeah. where you got to keep everything inside the lines and everything has to balance at the end of the day. And then he's going to put you into that profile picture in addition to the sideways hat or or the the age that you are or even the ethnicity that you are. People do fall into patterns based on their profession. Yeah, and I think Daniel Negreanu was really good in relationship to to profiling people and and making people feel like that they were very comfortable, so that they would open up and disclose things to them. Absolutely, to him. he he's fun to play with, and people enjoy playing with him. And he makes he's a wonderful role model for the game because he makes himself likable. He doesn't whine and cry like some other players we know, and you know <laughs> he he makes you feel important. And when you when you when people perceive that you like them, they're they're more willing to give you their money than if they're pissed off at you. Then they're going to play tighter and nittier against you. I remember Mike Caro always saying he wanted people to love giving him the, their money. That's right. I agree with that one. <laughs> well, tell me what you think about how 
about people going into card rooms for the first time. What do they need? How can they decide which games are good for them? Disregarding limits particularly, but how can they go around and look look at games and decide, let's say game selection. How how would what advice would you give people about game selection? Well generally if people are having fun at the table and laughing, that's an indication that it might be a um a better game to play in, you know, not as many pros and more people there to have a good time. Also, I think it's good to, uh, you know, if I know nothing else, I'm going to go to the table where that has more chips on it, you know, because that would indicate that people are stuck and have rebought. And, um, so those are a couple things you can do if you have no other information. Have a game and lots of chips. And it's, it's never a bad idea to look for people who are wearing conventioneer badges. Yeah, my name is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. People who are in town on business are are generally not regular players. Where if you sit down in a game and everybody's on a first name basis with everyone else, it's likely that they play there every day and that they are more aware of each other's games. So, not that they're uh, just targeting you, but you're the only unknown factor in the game when you sit down. And those those are games you probably want to avoid. Mm-hmm. That, I actually know a pro who used to wear a, a hello, my name is a badge, just to, to, to get people to think he was a conventioner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> so that's three good ways to, to select games. Any other ideas about how people can select a game that would be more profitable for them? Um, uh I think maybe a, I, I prefer to play with younger people um, than older people, just because I think they're probably a little bit more reckless. And Linda, uh, nobody older than you who plays poker. I know. Well, oh come on! <laughs> but um, younger people would be my, you know, because they're they a lot of them don't have the appreciation for money, and um, you know, not all of them, of course, but that would be something. I if I knew nothing about the game, I, I would go where the younger people were. So what you're looking for is you're looking for people who are willing to to give action and put money under the action. pot. Absolutely. I like action. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's that's the type of game that you're looking for because because you want to be able to profit when you get the hand when you get the when you get when you're able to yep. play that player. Definitely. Excellent. But not, that that's not necessarily a good game for every type of player. That's not right. going to be a good game for a more timid player, a novice player. Uh, a tight player. Uh, actually, it can be a good game for a tight player, except that the players are going to know that when you bet, you have it, and then you can change your style up. Uh, but but you have to look for the game that is best for you, and the game that's best for you might be a nittier game, might be an older clientele. You have to know what your strengths and weaknesses are. Uh, I, for a long, long time, I've tried to play like other people, and you really can't. You can learn different styles of play, but your your baseline is going to be what your own uh, ability is and what your own uh, confidence level is and what your own uh, comfort level is. And so you can't be a more aggressive player than you than you can be. And so you have to kind of know what's going to fit into which type of game. I found that different areas of the country are better games. I, you know, I happen to love playing poker in Southern California. And a, a lot of that is because the people there are just wilder and crazier. And I love the action. I love that insanity. But for a new or novice player, uh, that's going to be very, very intimidating. Whereas p- players like the three of us, we just don't get intimidated. But that's, I think we're an exception, certainly. Mm-hmm. What recommendation, what, what counsel do you have 
for, to pe- for people about how to manage their money and their bankroll? Well, I I think that um, until you're a really great player, I think that you need to limit your losses um, because for a lot of people, for most people, if they get stuck a lot, they their game deteriorates. So I would say, um, you know, I don't really believe in in for for really great players that that they should have um, loss limits. But for most people, I think it's probably a good idea. So like say, figure out what you what your average win is. If your average win is $200, then I would say, you know, don't lose more than like 400. If you lose 400, quit because you don't want to have to play more than two days to get your money back. So, and and plus, you're not playing as well usually when you're stuck. And it's also very important to keep records so that you have an honest accounting of how you're doing in the game so that you can manage your money. Uh, It's funny because when we talk to people, everybody's a winner. But obviously we know better than that that most people don't win at the game. And we'll ask them, well, you know, do you keep records? Well, no. Well, then how do you know you're a winner? You know, know. if you have other forms of income, you know, know, it's just really hard to know and it's hard to be objective unless you actually write it down and know where you're at. When I started keeping good records, really, really good records, I found what days of the week I did better. I found out what my optimal length of time playing was. I, you know, I found out which card rooms and which games I was better suited at. And these are all things that can really change how you feel about the game and can save your bankroll. Mm-hmm. I love that. Do you keep? Do you to today? Do you keep a, a notebook record or do you keep it in your on your smartphone? I keep records online, but unfortunately, I got a new computer yesterday, and I'm trying to figure out how to move those records over, and I'm finding that the program doesn't exist anymore. So I'm actually looking for a new program, but I've kept them online, you know, on a, in, a, in the Stat King record. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, if there's an app for a phone, I don't, I'm not aware of it, but I don't really know much about a smartphone. There's a phone that's smarter than I am. If you have an app, I would, I would love to know about it because keeping it on my phone would be the most accurate way for me right now probably. Sure. As a matter of fact, I just finally succumbed to getting a smartphone, and I'm in the process right now of trying to figure out which one I would like to use. There are several. Um, some of them are cumbersome, so I'll, I'll do some investigation myself and, and, and let me let you know. You mentioned smartphones. What should people do with their smartphone when they get to the table? Turn it on. Turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I was telling you that the last time I was in Las Vegas, I sat down at a, a, a Potlim and Omaha game, and, and half the players had their notebooks out, and they were actually doing things in their notebook during they're the not, game. Yeah, yeah, but they're not doing poker things. They're reading glitter, and they're, uh, you know, doing other kinds of things, and then, and they're not paying attention to how the game's being played. So, I love it when my opponents are using their phones. That's, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. There's another. There's another thing to look for. How many of them are on the phone? <laughs> mm-hmm. So what that that shows you that people are distracted; they're not paying attention to everything at the table. Exactly. So, yeah, exactly. You, you need to concentrate if you want to be good and if you want to be successful. How do you to think? Know who value bets? Who thin value bets? You need to know, you know, who bluffs and who will uh, do a triple barrel. And you know, if you're not watching, how are you going to know all this stuff? Well, there's a lot of people who are going to be listening to this are relatively new to poker. Why don't you explain value betting and thin value betting and triple barrel? 
Okay, value betting is when you think you have the best hand and you want to get paid off that you make a value bet. Thin value betting is when um, you probably have the best hand. You're going to have the best hand most of the time, but you don't have the nuts and you, you still want to get paid off. And, um, and triple barreling, that's when you bet all three streets as a bluff. So you make a bet on every... Uh, you know, I guess you triple barreling, you could do it with a real hand too, but usually people are referring to um, triple barreling as bluffing. Well, how does the mindset come into play? How can people, you know, you were talking earlier that people just have to get out there and, and, and make decisions without having cards, without having air. How can people condition their mindset that they can do this? Because they're going to get caught sometime. They're going to get scorched. So how, do, how does their mindset play, play into it? How can they change their mindset to, to get to the point where they can have courage enough to do this? Jan, you want to go? Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of a good answer for that one. I, you know, a lot of it is just simply experience. And part of the, the beauty of No Limit is the courage to put in a whole lot of money with nothing or with a very weak hand. Uh, and there again, it goes to, it goes to knowing your opponents. But, uh, mindset-wise, I think you, you really have to just, you know, separate yourself from the value of the money, not that you shouldn't respect money, but in order to play No Limit particularly, you have to, at the moment you're playing the game, really not respect money and know that the chips are just a way of keeping track. And that's why your record keeping and your money management is so important because you have to have that disregard in the moment, but in the long run, you, you have to pay attention to your mind. Well, I, I think your mindset, has you have to understand from the beginning that you're probably going to make a lot of mistakes when you first start. And the idea is to learn from those mistakes, but part of it is, being capitalized for the game that you're playing so that if you lose, it's not going to drive you nuts. You know, you have to be able to play a game that you can afford to lose in, uh, and, and that way that helps your mindset. I agree with you 100%. Now, one of the place, play, places that I feel is a good place to desensitize yourself to to to, to making those moves is in in medium-sized buy-in tournaments where you have X amount of dollars invested in the tournament, the money's already gone. You've, as far as I'm concerned, when you're playing in, when I say medium, I'm talking about somewhere in the 1 to 200, the, the smaller buy-in. Anything under 100 to me is, is like playing uh, penny-ante poker at the kitchen table. You know, anywhere, but, you know, you've got a hundred to two hundred, maybe three hundred dollar buy-in, even some of the, uh, World Series of Poker circuit events are in that range, at least the 265 range, I think. But if you get some of those smaller tournaments and you want to learn, I think it's a good place to buy into the tournament and then say, okay, I have paid this as, this is my tuition to learn. And then make an intention to practice something that might have been causing you um, that you might be, be afraid to do, you know, mm -hmm. practice it in a situation where you've already paid your money, and now say you can disregard the money because now you have chips in front of me that uh, in front of you. And I, I, that was one of the ways that that I started learning as well. And I think that might be a good way for people to do that. Yeah, I agree. That that's good. Um, yeah, people are they've got to practice, and there's no substitute for experience. You know, you can watch all day, you can read all day, but until you're out there in the battlefield, you're you're not going to um, really know what you're up against. So, well, one uh, of the one of the decision. one of the places that I have loved playing poker is on your card player cruises. Jan Linder, I want to say that you all are the best hosts when it comes to 
to hosting a cruise and for a poker room. One of the things I'd like to mention, and we hadn't even talked about this, but I really want to encourage people to 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 sign up for your cruises to experience it because I considered it one of my best learning experiences. One of the things that that uh, in a when we were talking about doing this conversation, doing this call before, you had mentioned that. Or maybe it was I was looking at one of your videos, Linda, I believe it was, where you said that generally speaking you don't have a lot of pros on board. So it right. might be easier games or softer games. And that's really fun, fun concept too. And I've always found cruise poker to be very profitable for me. It, it is, yes. Um, you know, it's mostly recreational players. And uh, people there who want to have a good time, play some poker, get to have the cruise experience too. And it's, uh, it's just so much fun. I've, I've been on more than 100 poker cruises, and I have enjoyed every one of them. So it depends on what your uh, customer wants to do. Do they want to go and see the majesty of Alaska, or do they want to, you know, go to the beaches in Mexico or the Caribbean? Uh, you know, and, and the prices are really good. That's oh, they, they, people don't understand. They really uh, are. Because yeah. What I just was surprised at was is the price includes your includes your cabin plus all the food you could possibly want to eat, and that is astonishing, especially if anyone knows what what food food costs when you travel. But one of the things that I'd like to just come to me right now is is if someone calls Card Player Cruises, if you go to Card Player Cruise Card Player Cruises dot com and you're interested in one of their cruises you give them a call tell them donna blevins sent you let me know that that if you've not cruised before let me know let them know that donna blevins sent you and yep. then have then you uh they'll contact me you email me that you've booked a cruise and i will give you an hour uh one-on-one -on -one private coaching session well, wow great deal that's awesome i might do that <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's retailing now for two hundred and fifty dollars, so um, that'll be a, a good bonus for someone. As we as we close t today, what what added bonuses would you like to tell people? What suggestions to improve their game? Um, read all the books you can read. Talk poker to people you respect. Um, subscribe to some of the online sites. Uh, the uh, do a boot camp, do seminars, all these things. Anything you can do uh, where you're putting in time and thinking about poker or playing poker, that's got to help you. And, and Jan, anything, any last comments? Yeah, it, I think it's important to always be a student of the game and keep your mind open. Be able to accept criticism from your peers so that they can get you back on kilter when you, when you stray. And respect your bankroll and respect the game. I love that. I love that. Well, I'm going to go ahead and, and close it out. You all stay on the line after I finish. I want to talk with you before we finish, but I want to say to everyone okay. else, uh, thank you so much for, for listening in. This is Donna Blevins, your Poker Mindset Coach and Dean of PokerMindsetAcademy.com.